But I'm going to just go ahead and invite uh, Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Welcome back to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am that host that you love, Jay Schiffman. This is episode 22. This is also a very special episode for me because it's dropping on my birthday. That shouldn't be a surprise to most of you who have been listening because I've been doing this birthday shout-out for the last couple of weeks. I hope you donated. Huge, huge thank you to everyone who did. We had almost 100 donors, and we hit our goal of $10,000. Special thank you to my buddy Spark Tabor, who you've heard me shout-out multiple times host of Cookies for Breakfast, one of my oldest friends in the world. He and his girlfriend, Sabrina, teamed up on a fundraiser that netted almost $1,500. That was huge. And, and overall, just everyone who donated, I really appreciate it. I, I, I can't say that enough, and I can't express that to the depth that, that I want to. I just really appreciate it. You did a good thing. You did a thing that really is going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much for that. Also, special shout out before we get into this episode, to all of my listeners in France, specifically in Paris. I've said this before, but the data that I get of who's listening, how they're listening, all that kind of stuff. Look, y'all in Paris are like 40% of my listeners now. And so, you know, I don't know if it's because, (laughs) special shout out to my good friend Laurence, who I'm convinced is throwing parties where everybody is just pressing play on their devices then going out. That's that's <laughs> that's my conspiracy theory. If you don't know Laurence, she's the coolest person I've ever met in Paris. I was just in Paris myself in December. I love your city. I love the country of France. And I love all of you for listening. It really means a lot to see that Paris is is creeping up on the US for my most number of listeners. So keep doing it Paris and you may overtake the US, which is pretty incredible. I guess that means that when we are able to reopen, I'm going to have to come to Paris and do a live taping of this show and and bring all of my Paris fans out to support. That'd be fun. I would love to meet you all in person. So as I said, this is episode 22. Uh, The guest today is just When I started doing this podcast, I made a list of all the people I wanted, and she was near the top. She is a rock star in this industry. She is a social worker who is also doing a lot of other incredible mental health work as well. She is our industry's Bruce Springsteen. She is just doing... Follow her on social media. It's so hard for me to describe all that she does because it's like, she talks about mental health and she plays piano and that doesn't like that's literally what she does but it it doesn't encapsulate how incredible Sarah Cornblet is. Sarah Cornblet is the Bruce Springsteen of mental health work. We had a lot of fun chatting and because of that there is no shout out this week. Uh I wanted the extra time for my conversation with Sarah. That's nothing against the shout out. It'll be back next week. 
Uh, I love the shout out, but I, I needed the extra time. And Sarah's interview is the first that was that was recorded over two separate sessions. And I combined those obviously to one interview. Um, I do a lot of the editing of these interviews, not because they, you know, they need to be cleaned up or anything like that, but usually I end up talking to the people for an hour, hour 15, hour and a half, whatever. And uh, I know I personally don't want to listen to an hour and a half or an hour 45 podcast. So, you know, I do cut it down to make it a little more concise. And uh, I wish I could release the whole thing. But uh, that's just that's not that's not fun for me. And <laughs> I don't think all of y'all want to listen. Appreciate all of you for uh, sharing, liking, reviewing. Um, I can see on on Apple again, the, the ratings and they keep going up. I think I have eight or nine reviews or, or excuse me, ratings on Apple. Uh, only one review. And that was from the early on. So whoever that person is, thank you. But if y'all want to jump in on that, please do so. If not, just keep sharing it and share it like Laurence does in Paris because, hey, U.S., y'all are being overtaken. And, and, you know, to all my my fans around the rest of the world, y'all can catch up with Paris too. So please keep sharing and keep reaching out, jshiffman.com, S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com, or jshiffman on most social medias. Just find me there. Uh, I love you all. Enjoy this interview. And uh, I'll catch you at the end of the episode. Are you ready to take your hemp experience to a whole new level? Because if so, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Made. Their puff line of smokable flour is unreal. They meticulously source each strain from select partner farms to ensure only the highest quality product in the marketplace. When it comes to the entourage effect, nothing tops strain-specific flour. It delivers the full range of all the amazing effects of CBD. I can tell you because I use it myself. With 0.7 grams of premium full flour inside of each pre-roll, you'll be ready to maximize your personal summit whenever you smoke. So check out Mountain Made today and grab a puff. They're federally compliant with less than 0.3% THC, which means they ship nationwide. All right, I'm going to grab a puff and let's get back to the episode. So given that I started, I went into social work like right after I like literally did high school, undergrad, social work school. I don't have like some fancy like corporate America understanding that like everything's corrupt and then like figuring out the meaning of life is mental health. Like I guess I kind of like already started there um, at a young age. I feel like the kind of like typical, like I knew that I loved talking to people, but I felt kind of like limited in what I could actually do for them. I remember when I was an undergrad, I had a internship at um, Columbia Children's Hospital in New York City. And I remember I was talking to one of the, the moms and like, she's telling me all this kind of trauma and different things she'd been through. And all I could do was listen. And I didn't even know what was I supposed to do? I didn't know if things were reportable. Like, I just didn't know anything. All I was, was like a friendly visitor. And so I was really interested in transforming from a friendly visitor to informed person who actually knows what to say and how to respond or how to direct the conversation in a way that was actually helpful. Or, you know, I think 
having a good listening ear is always helpful, but it's good. You know, there obviously once you get educated in mental health, you're at the, just the next step of helpfulness. Um, so I consider the different fields of mental health. Um, I was very interested in psychology. I even took the GRE. I did well. I was like ready to go. But as I spoke to more people in the fields, I really loved the part of social work that was understanding a person in the context of their environment. So versus like just that really like straight in focus on the mind and how it works, it's really understanding like systems and understand and helping not only with the person's direct situation, but like understanding the different obstacles within their system and how to help with that. So I re that really appealed to me, even though within the mental health field, it's not as quote unquote prestigious as psychology, like it, the perspective appealed to me. What I think is incredible and I want to point out is that you started with empathy. That was the number one, like literally your story starts with you providing empathy and going, I want to do more than just this. And I think that's so important because we have so many people who number one, just don't like, don't show empathy at all. But number two, we're, we're a lot of people learn that, wow, like it's so much harder to start this later, you know, to get into it and then try to develop the empathy than it is to start with that and build on top of it. It's almost like trying to build a found, uh, build a, a foundation after you've already have the building up and then it's just, it ain't going to work. So I think it's incredible. And it says a lot about, you know, those who know you on social media, that that was already there. Like that wasn't a developed thing. You started with that and built on top of it. I appreciate that. I, I want us to make a point about that, um, about the empathy thing, because I think that like, well, like with most things, there's a continuum, right? There's a spectrum. And I think some people have feel things so deeply that being in a field where they're basically like immersed in other people's pain and trauma all the time can be too overwhelming and can be can lead to really quick burnout. And so I do wanna say that I also, something that I kind of had naturally going in was that I was always able to listen to my friends when they had issues and stuff, but like I never walked around feeling like my friend's problem was my problem. And there are people like that, right? Who, who they like, who they're so open-hearted and so kind that they feel their friend's pain like their own, which is wonderful. But when you're going into a field where you're gonna be encountering like really intense trauma and really, really deep pain, it could be good to do some self-reflection, I think, for, you know, to see like, will this be too much to carry? Or do I think I have, you know, or can continue to develop that boundary that I can keep like my life versus the people I'm helping live? I could not be a social worker because I would come home every day and just crash. And so I think it's really important that I figure that out and do what I do now, which is being more, you know, yes, coaching is a part of my, of my work, but, but pushing it out as, in, as instead of pulling it in is way more what I do because that doesn't leave me feeling just gutted at the end of the day. So I have all the respect in the world for people like you who can do that and still maintain good mental health. Right. And still have like an, a full and rich emotional life, like aside from your job, right? Versus like it becoming you. And I mean, some, you know, within my work experience, I spent two years working in a children's hospital um, 
working with end of life care. And so Ugh. most people, they see, they react like <laughs> yeah. hearing a vague reference to the job makes them want to go to their room and cry all day. Okay. So yeah. let alone if you're doing it all day, like you can only take on working in an area that you know you can give, but you can also give to the people in your life, like not where it uses you all up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just, again, to echo what I said, I could not do what you do. And I, that's why I have so much appreciation for those who can't because we need it, but it takes a special skill. So, so talk about then where, where you are now. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so the first six years of my career I spent working in the medical field just to kind of give some lead up, um, which kind of happened by accident working in dialysis clinic was the first thing I got. And I just fell in love with that environment. I fell in love with working with, you know, kind of just like the complexity of helping someone adjust to living with a chronic illness and just, you know, kind of navigating the mental health challenges, the family dynamic, all that stuff. Like I, I loved it. And then, like I said, I transitioned into working in the children's hospital and I actually helped found the palliative care team at Texas Children's Hospital, which is the biggest children's hospital in the country. So that was an amazing experience. I got to like go to trainings, give trainings. It was awesome. So then I moved from Texas back to my hometown in New Jersey, um, I guess almost two years ago at this point. And so at, at this point, I've, you know, I've opened a private practice and I give trainings. Um, and I actually just took on a new role I'm working for an intensive outpatient program and I am developing the grief and bereavement track. So. Wow. Well, mazel tov on the new position. Thank you. <laughs> That's at Hope Street. So it's pretty exciting. So I post on LinkedIn a lot around the topics of mental health and substance misuse and recovery, because I think that it's important to have these conversations in a work setting. And for the longest time, these conversations were happening on more of a, you know, the other social medias, right? Where, where these things were seen as more acceptable. Why did you pick LinkedIn and how has that experience been for you? So I actually chose LinkedIn because when I first started close to two years ago, um, I was posting more about like, you know, when you're working in, in mental health or in healthcare, having good emotional boundaries. And it was kind of more, focus towards professionals who were in my area of practice. And then as I kind of got more comfortable in making videos, being more relaxed, um, I started becoming more open and more personal about my own experiences and my own insecurities or my own feelings of, um, you know, how I work through my insecurities or my own experiences with, you know, mental illness and how I've worked through it or continue to work through it, how I make meaning of it. And ultimately through starting to post that stuff, I just found people so receptive and so many people reached out to me who wouldn't even like or comment on the post because they were so you know, there's just that worry that like, if I like it, then people will know that I have mental illness, you know, or whatever. But like, I, I guess you could say I got encouraged or I got like behaviorally, um, I don't know, trained, like I was like, oh, positive feedback, do more of it. <laughs> and I just, I just kept doing more and more. And I don't know, it didn't stop. So 
And and you are so for those who have never uh, interacted with you on social media, which by again I encourage people to go do. Your sort of hallmark is you're very in, uh, personable, very engaging, but you are willing to talk about these topics in a way that, as kind of you were saying, some people have skirted around or some people just won't talk about it at all. Is that a thing that is like, I mean, was this uh, the sort of the lifestyle you grew up in your household or is this really a thing that you have come to later in life? That's a really good question. So I would say I definitely grew up with an openness surrounding mental health. Like when I was in third grade and my mom was pregnant and I was like feeling neglected. She like sent me to like a play therapist and we did puppet therapy. Like, so like a young age, like therapy was just like very freely engaged with. And so that definitely made a difference for me because like I didn't, I never even grew up seeing therapy as like, oh, you have to be falling apart to do that. So I would definitely say I was kind of predisposed to have a positive view towards taking initiative and getting help. Um, but in my own, you know, even with that, I've definitely had to work through a lot of my own shame surrounding different mental health struggles, um, you know, and, and really before, so in regard to social media, LinkedIn is the first, it's my main platform I use, and it's the first one that I've ever been like open about my own mental health struggles on. Um, but before that, even I've always been open about my mental health stuff with my friends and even acquaintances. Like it's always been kind of like an important thing to me to like just casually say, oh yeah, my therapist or something to just like normalize it. That's, that's been important to me. So now I'm, I have a chance to do it on a really broad scale, which is super awesome. Well, and you touched on something that I think is incredibly important. And that was that from an early age, you never had it distilled in you that to see a therapist meant you were, as you said, falling apart. And there's the slogan now that's before stage four, right? That we treat mental health. If, if it was cancer that, oh, I don't need to see a therapist. You know, I only have stage two. It's like, that's ridiculous. If you went and dealt with it, if you worked on some of these things early, you don't get to stage four. And I can't tell you how many times people push back when I say, well, are you seeing a therapist? I'm like, no, no, I just, you know, I get down sometimes. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> like that. That's why you should. So right. how have you dealt? Like, how have you found success in pushing back on that thought? I mean, it seems so silly, but it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, for as much as people like to equate, you know, mental health with physical health, there's still the component of mental health that people often feel is very intricately tied in with their identity or who they are. And so I think that there's that feeling of like, there's something wrong with me or I am weak if I can't get through this myself. And there's so many different reasons, messages someone may have gotten, you know, to go with that. But I mean, I, I feel like the best, you know, it's kind of like, this is going to sound weird, but like, I'm happy that I've had mental health issues because like, I feel like I'm able to, I don't know how it would help encourage people to t get help if I haven't been in that spot. You know, like it's easy. It's something I like to do when I do this a lot on LinkedIn, I like to teach something by showing it and just by modeling it. And I'm like, 
instead of just like, hey, be open about your mental health and be comfortable with it, I say, hey, guys, I'm Sarah and I'm open about my mental health stuff and I'm comfortable with it, right? Like, so that, that's kind of how I've found it to be helpful is just to be open and comfortable. But I also help people, like, this is gonna, this is like a really nitty gritty thing, but I help people figure out how to choose a therapist because so many people, like they try once, they have some therapist who's like totally off target or like random old school, not on whatever, not helpful. And they're like, I tried it and it didn't work. Right. So like I teach people how to like go on psychology today, call a few people, ask some questions, see it as a time that you're interviewing. And, and then only someone who you felt really comfortable on the phone call set up a session with, you know, like, I think that's a really important thing that we don't talk about enough. That is so important. And I, I had that happen not two days ago where, and by the way, I should say that, you know, I mentioned on my podcast a lot of being Jewish and, and you know, it, it is a little, there is something about this in our community that is, you know, it, it's sort of a little different in that way. But I mentioned another guy on, on one of these committees that, um, you know, we were talking about mental health and I said, yeah, I've seen uh, five different therapists since I moved down here to Charleston in, in August. And he was like flabbergasted. He was like, dude, are you, are you like nuts? And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not why. I was like, no, no, no. It's because like one was really good at one thing and we worked on that and a different was really mm -hmm. good at this thing. And so we worked on that. And then my wife and I tried a couple different marriage therapists. And so we found one that we kind of liked for where we are, we were then. And now we're looking for a different one for where we are now. And so it's so important. And people like, they don't get that. There isn't that in the same way where if you had a bad doctor, people are like, yeah, you know, some doctors are shitty. We're going to go try a different one. But yeah. there's not that same understanding for, for, for therapists. Right. No, that's so true. And it's, I mean, it has to be the right match. It has to be, you need to have good personality chemistry with your therapist. Like, and I think that some people, they end up with the wrong therapist for a long time because they keep convincing themselves, well, well, the therapist is really knowledgeable. They must be doing the right thing. Like, no, you have to trust yourself. Yeah, maybe you've never been in therapy, but you've talked to people. You know which people you like talking to. Find a person you like talking to. For me, I see my, I mean, virtually, I see my therapist once a week. I am going through a pandemic and I am a single mom of four children, including one with like some pretty serious um, medical issues. I, I like, I need to stay on track. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, like I've spoken about, I have a history of depression and anxiety. I have ADHD. It is hard to stay on track with my life, but having a therapist, it's almost like having like a touchstone in my week. It just centering and it just, it, it kind of like, um, ripples out into everything else. Just this feeling of having my act together. You know what I mean? So you touched on, on something that I would love for you to define, because I think it'll be really important, is you mentioned EMDR, which is a newer, not new, but newer for a lot of people in uh, that, that are not in this space that don't mm -hmm. exactly know what that is. My wife has, has used that EMDR. I'm going to be starting here not too long, hopefully, you know, once COVID starts dying down. I would love for you to, you don't even have to talk about your experience, just talk about what it is and why we're seeing such a... Um, I don't know if you, I would even call it a rise, maybe more of an awakening or more of an awareness boost for this process. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So just briefly, like, first of all, I'm not trained in EMDR. There's really specialized training um, for somebody to be able to do this. And, you know, and it's not even something you just do on its own. You should have experience working with trauma because that's what it's used for. Um, I'm looking up what it stands for. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Just wanted to make sure I'm saying it right. Um, but basically, and there is controversy surrounding it just because, you know, regarding what the evidence there's, but I mean, there's anecdotal evidence and I can give you anecdotal evidence that it's, it's been hugely helpful for me personally with some of the traumas that I've experienced in my life. Well, and what you said was, was true. So they don't have, you know, a thousand percent proof that there's a lot of backing, but there also isn't a lot of like, it, it's harmful. And I think at this point, that is okay because it's still like it's not new but it's new enough that if we were waiting for the scientific community to roll out all the necessary steps that they take to tell us something is is you know proved or whatever we're missing a lot of the benefits here and so i think that's really important especially when it comes to mental health is to clarify that just because there's not mountains of evidence like we have physically doesn't mean something can't be healthy and helpful. Yeah. So really in order for something to be considered evidence-based, you know, there are basically some types of therapy that are easier to track, right? So like, let's say CBT is, you know, the, the client is tracking, how do you feel on a scale of one to 10? Okay. You know, you're, there's so it's, it's, numeric, like it's easy to track data. And so when something is easier to track, it's also easier to do different research on and and to be able to prove, oh, this is what works. And then the insurance comes in and says, okay, you need to use that because that's what works. And so sometimes in my experience, what that leads to is certain kinds of therapy or techniques that may be more surface level sometimes. Um, and lead to like, okay, in six sessions, you're done and you learn the skills you need to know, but not necessarily allowing for the deeper level work to be done. There is definitely space for that. There are times where someone's in crisis and they need that like quick, here's some skills, get through it. But I think that it just can be a challenge when we talk about like, oh, this is evidence-based and this is not. It's, It's because some things are just easier to track really, you know, and some things are just harder to really quantify. So I have two two sort of diff- very different direction of questions on that, but I'm going to go with this one first. Why do you think it is as someone who works in this space that, you know, when it comes to physical health, right, the barrier is so much lower. How much of that impact of we can literally see this do you think there is on, on that mental health? Is, is that is that more of what's at play here? And is it just that because it's harder to quantify and qualify the level of treatment, it's a lot harder to sort of say when success is, quote unquote, for mental health? So I think that, you know, let's say for the, if you're bringing it to the physical, the realm of physical treatment, right, medical stuff, then, you know, somebody is having high blood pressure and either the medication works or it doesn't. Right. And it gives, you know, and so it's more, it's like, you can see the results. And so the thing is with mental health is that in a certain negative sense, when we're using that medical model, they want to see how fast are the symptoms gone. So that could be a good thing sometimes, right? Because if someone's having crippling anxiety, they want to be able to 
get through it and, and as quickly as possible. But if the insurance is not helping, let's say, pay for the deeper work to be able to explore what, you know, where that came from and how to really long term help that person in their life, right? There, there's short term results. And then there's how do you sustain that longer term? And I think one of the criticisms of these, these kind of shorter term treatments is that they, they may not be able to give someone the momentum to like hold on to that forever, right? Or, or I mean, and a lot of times with mental health work, like there could be work that you do that, that it takes a while to really see the results of the work that was done. And so it doesn't necessarily translate into that medical model of here's the medication, where's the results, you know? Yeah. And I think, so you touched on the other question I had, perfect direction. How much of that impact is because insurance is going, I just don't want to pay for this. And, and, you know, it, it, it's like, okay, we, we will pay as long as we are literally able to understand success, but when it's a lot harder, it, how much is that impact of insurance? So the, yeah, insurance definitely impacts a lot. And, you know, which is maybe even one of the reasons that a lot of therapists choose to kind of go around that by not even being involved with the insurance. Um, but like in a managed care setting or a clinic, there's also more of that pressure, but it's always that balance of, you know, you have to, if, if the insurance is paying, then you need to do what they want because they're paying for a specific thing, but it's, you know, the challenge of how do you present that? How do you give that with in the most effective way possible that, you know, as a clinician that you're helping the person the best that you can, you know? So I asked this of uh, a guy who, who works in a medically assisted treatment facility because that in that world, insurance, it's a constant battle. And I said, uh, you know, tell me about the relationship. He said, look, man, there is literally no positive for me to take it other than helping my clients. They make my life a living hell. I have to fill out all this paperwork. They fight me tooth and nail for every dollar. But if I don't do this, then most of my clients that I see here can't afford my treatment. It, I would... Are you seeing any progress in this as we more normalize treating mental health or is that there's still a, the idea that insurance is 20 years behind? I think it's, it's definitely challenging. And like, you know, like I spoke about earlier, I really, I've worked mostly in like the medical setting versus, and so I really have experience working with insurance more on the medical side versus the actual mental health side. So I, I don't want to like proclaim to be any kind of real expert or too knowledgeable about the process that and the advocacy involved with that, you know? Understandable. So let's talk a little bit about your social media work again. So tell me about the piano. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So social media and have, you know, let's say being an artist or being a musician is really like, it's a rough world out there because with one Google search, you can find the person who's the best at what they do. And so for me, you know, I've done, you know, I've had an art Instagram account for a few years, um, but it's kind of intimidating because you see the people who are just so phenomenal and it can be overwhelming and hard to like make a name for yourself. And so I never even really bothered posting piano anywhere because in my, from my perspective, like, okay, someone can look on YouTube and find like, incredible piano pieces right and so what happened was is after I was on LinkedIn for a while and posting and sharing about myself I realized that you know piano is an important thing to me and and I often 
have like have a way of connecting the song that I play to some kind of message, you know, or quoting a certain piece of the lyrics as a message. So not necessarily the piano by itself, um, but the piano as a way of sending a message and a way of sharing a part of my journey. So when I think of my piano posts, I don't think I'm saying, hey guys, I'm the best piano player ever, ever born. I feel like I'm saying, this is something I do and I'm sharing a piece of me and a piece of my journey with you through the piano. You know, I mentioned this, I think really early when we first started talking, but LinkedIn is not where a lot of people go for this, well, a lot of what you put out there. And you have found such an amazing way to get these topics talked about in the LinkedIn setting, right? Because there are people who do a lot of what you do on Facebook and all that kind of stuff. But then there's like, no, 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 we don't, we don't, you know, we're not touching LinkedIn. You were like, no, 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 screw all that other stuff. I'm going to make you talk about mental health on LinkedIn by playing piano, by being very vulnerable. This is something I always ask people who are very active in social media. Talk a little bit about the responses you get both, you know, I'm sure most of them, I assume most are in positive, but positive, negative, whatever. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I definitely, there are a lot of people who are hesitant to like or comment on my content because it is public and, and, and I fully respect that depending on what field they're in. They don't necessarily want to um, maybe call attention to the fact that they're struggling with something with mental health, even though liking a post is in no way doing that, but when they're living it, they're extra conscious of that. So I get fre frequently, private messages where people share with me how much of an impact some of my content and some of the things I've shared has had for them and explaining, you know, that why they don't want to be directly um, engaging with the post. And that's totally cool with me. I don't, you know, I, for me, it's not just, it's not about like, if you like or comment, it's if you watch it, you read it and it impacts you. Like, I don't care about the number, like who cares? You know, that that's, I really can, yeah, I really appreciate that. But one of the things that I noticed was, you know, something that's important to me is talking about self-love and quieting the inner critic. And after I started posting a lot about it, a bunch of people who I'm connected with kind of started having that theme in their posts related to other fields, you know, and, and like, you know, oh, I sent out an email with a mistake and I, was so upset at myself. And then I remembered, you know, self-love and, you know, she linked me to it. And like, it was so exciting to feel like it was having an impact or even if someone wasn't directly, you know, bringing me into it, but like, I know that they've been engaging in my posts for a while and that it may have had some influence, like, and then they're writing something about being kind to yourself. Like that's so rewarding to feel like there's an impact. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I will say, as, again, as someone who follows a lot of what you do, that, that you have, I, I don't know anyone else that I follow, at least, that has the the rate of responses to, to, to posts as you, I mean, you know, a lot of people like, a lot of people, whatever, and you'll get a couple of comments, that's just the way LinkedIn works, you get pages because you've invited this atmosphere of, of connectedness and, and sharing. And, and you definitely have done an amazing job of making people feel comfortable with posting. And I think a part of that is that you personally, this is an amazing thing that you do. And this is how you and I got connected is that you go through and respond to every single person that comments. And it really says something about you as a 
person who is putting these messages out there, it's not a one-way street at all for people who follow you. It is very much a give and take between you and people who follow you. Yeah, and I mean, definitely since the pandemic and having all my kids home, like my time has been more limited and I haven't been able to do that same level of engagement with the people who comment, which is very challenging for me. Like sometimes I'll be able to respond to the first bunch of comments, but then if it like really snowballs and there's a lot, I just don't have the time if I want to continue putting out more content, you know? And so that is challenging for me because like you said, I'm grateful and lucky to have people inspired by what I write to write really involved and long comments. And so like really thought out and like I learned so much from some of what people put out there and, and often it inspires my next post, you know? And I love, I love that give and take piece, you know? Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting things about Facebook is that, I'm sorry, LinkedIn, is that unlike Facebook or any of the other social medias that I'm, I'm active on, the responses are 10 times more thoughtful on LinkedIn, the conversations that, and, and this is good and bad. I mean, some of the negative ones that I get from time to time are 10, you know, they're not the, the regular fuck yous that you get on any other, but they're like, let me actually lay out for you why you're wrong and why I hate you. And it's like, <laughs> uh, some of this stuff goes so, and it, you're almost like, look, I don't agree with you. I don't like your tone. I do appreciate how you showed your notes. You had three links in your response to me. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've definitely been on the receiving end of, of criticism. And, and, you know, when you put yourself out there, that is something that you're opening yourself up to. And it can be really painful and challenging. You know, I, I posted about this the other day that like, you know, no, I'm not super tough as nails and it rolls right off of me. And if I was, then it probably would would translate to another piece of my, you know, like I'm an empathetic person and I feel things deeply. And if someone criticizes me sharply, I will feel it. I mean, I'm, I'm human. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and not that I'm going to, you know, let that comment stay with me every day for the rest of my life or like, or ruminate on it for years. Like, it's not like that, but it, it gets to me and I don't pretend otherwise, you know? And sometimes like, if I get a bunch of that, like sometimes that'll prompt me to take a little break and just not because like they're winning or silencing me, but because I just need to refocus and remember like those people are the tiny minority, tiny minor minority, like the amount of positive like outweighs it by a trillion, like, but it still can get to you, you know, and something, one of the things that I was criticized on in the past and I, I'm, I'm sharing this because I think you might, appreci you might appreciate this. Because one of the things that I do is I share about myself, right? And my own journey and my own mental health struggles. And so there was one post that I did that really got some negative response um, where I talked about you know, the fact that I had dealt with really deep depression where I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning and I just, I just didn't want to live. I was just so, so depressed, right? And they, you know, people really wrote very thought out responses about why I should not be a therapist if I have such big issues. You know, like they were basically like, you need to get help for yourself, lady. Why are you working with people? And so, even though that wasn't, I mean, what I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm in a healthy space. I would never consider working with clients if I was in that space emotionally. But it was still like, ah, it like freaked me out a little because 
those people had strong opinions. And like, because I, you know, try to be empathetic and understand, like, I really, I really was able to see the perspective of people who have a more traditional view of a therapist as a blank slate. And you don't really want to know what your therapist's problems are. And so, but I mean, that kind of got to me, but I really, I, I kind of worked through it and, and realized that I don't need to be that therapist of the past who is a blank slate and I can just be me and hope that, you know, the people that I work with appreciate that. And mind you, I'm not sharing, like, I'm not going into work with my clients and saying, Hey, I had depression, but like, if let's say they happen to see something I put out there and they bring it to me, then we can discuss it. I, I keep a couple of the negative comments and I actually have a collection going of PhDs who have told me to get out of their pool. Like that's my favorite because it's people going, you know, uh, I don't think you should be here. You don't get to have a voice. I study literally one woman said I studied for over 10 years so that I can sit at this table. Where's your degree? And I'm like, you know, I mean, I'm, I feel bad that you clearly, like that comment isn't necessarily about me as much as it's about you being like, did I really not need to do all of that to have a seat at this table? And so I get it and I feel bad for you, but I collect those because it's like, all right, if I'm pissing off those people, clearly I'm doing something right. But also it does start lighting a little bit of that flame in that imposter syndrome of going that little tiny voice going, well, what if they're kind of right? And then you just have to work harder to silence that voice. Right. Totally. And like you said, I mean, that individual like clearly felt threatened in some way. So it, it, it brought out an insecurity. I mean, if you're a PhD and you're awesome at what you do and you're confident, you don't feel the need to go out and put down other people. You're glad. Exactly that people are out there spreading the word and spreading education, you would never try to silence it, you know? Well, and also, exactly. I mean, I think that's exactly right. It's the confidence piece. If you truly believe in what you're doing, you want all the voices in the room, not not none other than yours. I mean, that's that's not a healthy attitude about anything. But as I always say, I mean, every time I talk to any podcast, any time that I talk to a potential client as, as a coach, my relationship to you and to your therapist is the same as like, if you go to your doctor and ask your doctor what you should be lifting in the gym, your doctor is going to be like, I don't fucking know, man. Why are you asking me that? Whereas if you go to your personal trainer and say, Hey man, my gallbladder's hurting. He's going to be like, go to your doctor. Why are you talking to me? That's the, the, the same understanding that, that I'm trying to help you know these people, people have is I'm not trying, I don't want to replace your therapist. In fact, the first thing I always tell clients is, you should be also be seeing a therapist. Therapists are awesome. As you and I talked about last time in, in the first part of this, I've seen five in the last year because they're all good at different things. Therapists are amazing. So, but there is definitely a little bit of that get out of my sandbox attitude from people who, who work their ass off to get where they are and then want other people to have to do the same thing. Let's see. We got. I have a couple of, of questions I always ask at the end of every show. The first of which is, uh, you do this a lot already in your, your social media, but tell my listeners a little bit about your self-care habits in, uh, in not necessarily just in the time of COVID-19, but you know, uh, all the time. And if there is one that you've really doubled down on recently that you has been working for you, I want to hear about. It. Yeah, sure. So I try to be creative about self-care and, 
you know, think about it as things that can be fit into daily life versus like a weekend at the spa, um, which is like that typical, like, I don't massage or something like that. I, you know, and because I have four children and I'm working, I'm not, that kind of stuff is not happening for me. Um, so when I think of self-care, it's not even always something that's relaxing. It's something, it's fitting in something I enjoy into my day and my day, not just revolving around my job, revolving around taking care of other people. It's like, how do I do something for me? Um, and so reading, I love reading fiction. Love it. Love it. Love it. Fantasy and fiction, my favorite ever. So I read a lot, like considering how busy my life is, I read, I try to read at least one novel a week. Um, and, and I do it, you know, I have Kindle, you know, the Kindle app on my phone and I'll just be sitting there and not scrolling through social media, but I'm just reading my book. And I fit that in because it nurtures a part of me. And like, it's also, to me, it's also important. This is something like a distinction that I think like some people have a challenge with. Sometimes your self-care is something you're already doing, but you're thinking of it as wasting time. Definitely. Thinking of it as, oh, I was just lazy and I wasn't doing stuff. It's it's really a mindset, self-care. And when you make that shift, you literally take something that was, oh, whatever, I was watching Netflix for half an hour, like instead of doing something else, right? Half an hour, I know is a short time for Netflix. I don't know if you can even ever be on Netflix (laughs) for half an hour only. Instead, what about, I had a long day at work. I watched two episodes of my favorite show to take care of myself. And now I'll do some other things I want to do instead of, oh, whatever. I just didn't have any mental energy. So I just wasted an hour. Like it's about thinking about the things that you enjoy, framing it that I am doing this to take care of myself or to enjoy myself for an hour. And then voila, you're already doing self-care. You just need to stop thinking that you're wasting time and think that you're taking care of yourself so that you could focus on your others. hundred percent. So I, I love that. That's a great perspective. And like, but I mean, obviously people can use the self-care thing to justify for too much if they want to just justify why they're not doing anything ever. Okay. That's then that's problematic. But like, and maybe let's say you worked so hard Monday through Friday and then it's the weekend and you binge watch for five hours and you think to yourself in advance, I am going to just let loose and let myself binge watch and just say to myself, Sarah, you've worked hard time to just chill a little then that five hours of binge watching is self-care because it's about the fact it's all about the perspective and also making sure that like you're not you're really doing productive stuff in your life too you know (laughs) i think i think what's so important to say on this is that you know a lot of things like that people do more in secret because they feel like it's a guilty pleasure and i hate that idea it's like if if you enjoy it own it totally agree this is your chance to talk about whether it's someone who's influenced you and you want to give them a shout out whether it's someone that you know you've been following for years a writer a a social media person whatever shout out some people that we should all be paying attention to that we probably aren't right now i would definitely say that my family has been and continues to be just this constant source of inspiration and belief in I guess human goodness and connection and good communication I have four sisters um, and 
like just watching each of them and where their lives are taking them. It's just constant source of inspiration. So just to backtrack a little, um, my mom is a physician leader. So she is pretty high up in the VA system and just always going to leadership trainings. Even now, like even 66 years old, she's continuing to learn how to be a better leader and do these kinds of things where her staff does evaluations on her to help her understand how to be better. And so for me, growing up with a mother who was always in like leadership positions in hospitals, um, definitely me and my four sisters, we all grew up thinking like we were gonna do something big and we were gonna make a difference. And so it's been exciting, you know, for me, I'm a social worker. My next sister is, um, in law school, then my uh, the next sister is a social worker too, um, and then the next sister is on a journey, but she's been in the army and traveled the world extensively. And my youngest sister is starting medical school next month, and so I just love seeing how each of my sisters is just taking their passion and just going for it and it's just kind of exciting to just be surrounded by people on a personal level who are, I guess, go-getters and wanting to help other people with what they do. All right. So last one, give us one more shout out where people can find you. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, sure. So definitely LinkedIn is my main place that I hang out and I'm always open to you know, new connections and having message, you know, private messages with people and answering questions, however I can. Um, and I really appreciate that you chose me to interview me. Like I'm really honored and it's just awesome what you do and what you've devoted your career to. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, oh, man, I just, I don't even know where to begin. Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. They'll even distribute for you, so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. All right, we've reached the end of another episode. The Rockstar Podcast with Sarah Cornblit and the special French podcast. I wish I could do... Like, I wish I could speak any French, and then I would be like, yo, what's up, Paris people? But I can't. I, I, I'm not even, I'm not going to insult you by trying. What I am doing is trying to convince my good friend, Laurence, who lives in Paris, to come on the podcast. Thank you to Sarah Cornblit. You were incredible. I really loved our conversation. And I'm sure the listeners are, you know, sitting there thinking, Wow, she is interesting. I'm going to go follow her on LinkedIn. If you're not thinking that, go do it because she is the best. And she will take time, as you heard in the interview, she will take time to reach out to you personally and be like, yo, what's up? So uh, definitely follow Sarah. 
Her link is in uh, the show notes. Without any further ado, let's get on to the cards. Brought to you by Blurt. We are going to choose a card from the Press Pause Pack. Man, that's tough to say. Press Pause Pack. Say that ten times fast. Thank you, Blurt, as always, for bringing this segment to the listeners' ears. Here is your card for episode 22. If your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete. If your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete. And that is a quote by Jack Cornfield. I like that a lot. And I think that's uh, incredibly important to say. You know, there are a lot of uh, people who love the message. If you wouldn't say what you're saying to yourself to a person that you love, you shouldn't be saying it to yourself either. And I like that a lot. I mean, it's true. We are harsher on ourselves than we are on pretty much anyone else in our life. Like, think about if if you had a friend that you said the things about that you say to yourself, that person would be like, man, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. You're a dick. So I really like that. Be compassionate to yourself. Uh, and if your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete. That's a great, great message. Thank you, Blurt, as always, for that one. Here is your good egg for today. Around the world we are having a racial and equitable reckoning. And it is far past time. Uh, I was just recording with someone that's going to be on a future podcast where we were talking briefly about the Constitution. And we were laughing about how the Constitution says the word pirates more than it does slaves. And we built our country on that document. So. We st- we just have never dealt with this issue, and yet we want to turn our back to it and be like, it's fine. No, it's fine. It's not fine. We're having a racial, reckon- rec- racial reckoning <laughs> that is deserved, and we all need to be working on it. So here's your good egg for this week. In the show notes, there's a link to Debbie Irving's 21-Day Racial Equity Habit Building Challenge. Uh, Debbie is a racial justice educator and writer. I, I don't, I don't know Debbie personally. This isn't like, Hey, that's my aunt. I don't, I don't know who she is. I'm sure she's a great person. I have no idea. Uh, if you do this work, most of the time you, your heart's in the right place. So, you know, I'm sure Debbie is a great person, but what I'm focused on is this 21 day challenge that she has built. And I like it a lot because it challenges you every day to spend time really addressing your own uh, understanding of, as she puts it, power, privilege, supremacy, oppression, and equity. And her actions fall into, the, into different categories, including read, listen, watch, notice, connect, engage, act, reflect, and stay inspired. So she's got things under all those categories for you to do every day, more than 21. You've got plenty here. And so I really like this list of things we can all be doing. But at the end of the day, what's most important is educating yourself as, as this challenge is. And that's why I like that it's 21 days. And then go do it. You know, I, I saw this, this uh, education not long ago on Instagram, actually. 
that was talking about, you know, why is it that we're seeing this charge of people to go read, to go watch, to go listen, whatever, uh, black voices. And then at the end of it, people are going like, great, I'm solved. It takes a lot of work and it takes education and then actually doing the work afterwards. So that's your good egg. Do this 21 day challenge and then put these ideas in place. Let's all join together to make that difference. It's not just an American thing, although obviously my reference to this is uh, very American. It's, you know, for my listeners in France, I know y'all are, are dealing with this right now too. Thank you, tip of the hat for, for that work. But all around the world, I'm sure my Malaysian listeners are like, we could do better at the ideas of racial equality and equity and justice. So props to everyone who's working on this. If, if you want to do more, your good egg is in the show notes. Check it out. Thank you for listening. Thank you again to Sarah. You know, keep, keep showing that empathy. Keep showing that vulnerability. Spread some love and choose your struggle.